Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can sign up for our regular live Zoom events, including on July 21st, Will Marshall, President and Founder of the Progressive Policy Institute on Democrats Then, Now and Tomorrow. Coming up on the show today, Shauna Rodenberg, author of the new book, Kin, a memoir. Shauna, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on the book. And this is a memoir of your family, which has deep roots in eastern Kentucky. Um, What made you want to write it? Oh, well, um, for starters, I think um, I studied poetry at Bennington College. That was where I got my graduate degree. And um, I actually uh, never studied memoir. Um, but I found that I had a mentor who told me multiple times that um, my poems were being burdened by too much narrative, that he, he felt I had a story to tell and thought that if I could write a memoir that it might make my poetry better. And so that was my initial impetus for writing the book. Um, I was really reticent at first and very nervous about the public nature of of uh, telling my story, but um, ultimately I'm glad I did. And it, it is a very personal book. A, a lot of it is uh, memoir. A lot of it is also memoir, kind of going back and imagining what your family's experiences uh, must have been like. So this is your story, but it's also the story of your mother, of your father, uh, and also of your, of your grandmother, who had a very important influence in your life. That's right. That's right. And um, that decision, the decision to include many stories that occurred even before I was alive, um, mostly came from my desire to, uh, I, had, I had heard um, a uh, TED Talk by uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She talked about um, In the Single Story was the title of the TED Talk, and she she discussed sort of the the dangers of telling a story from the middle. <clears throat> so um, sort of the the pitfalls of, of beginning a story, which, you know, generally is attached to stereotypes, um, which Appalachia is riddled with, um, and the danger of beginning the story in the middle and how that story often becomes the single story of a place. And so as I began writing the memoir, I kept thinking, well, that's not really where it starts. It starts before, long before that. You know, um, my mother, the stories that she had told me over the course of my life so many times seemed essential to my story. And so I began to include those in the memoir and um, and layer, layering the experiences of myself with the people that I loved uh, seemed to make the most sense, given the complications of Appalachia. Yeah, you talk about the complications of Appalachia there, and, and actually that's where you start the memoir. Um, you you have some, uh, some quite uh, funny but also chilling uh, stories at the beginning of, of people who would come to you knowing that uh, you came from Appalachia, uh, and, and you almost become what you describe as, as an ambassador uh, for the region that well-meaning Northeasterners 
coming right. to see what they describe as a war zone in, in Appalachia, the kind of the stereotypes following the election of Donald Trump. One TV cameraman uh, calls your hometown a hellhole. Um, yeah. in, in some ways, this book is an answer to, uh, to that misconception. Yeah, I knew. I knew as soon as I had that experience, I had a sense that it was going to open the book because it seemed to be the place that best described or the moment that best described the sort of work of existing in both places, um, of existing in the mountains and then uh, having a, a life outside of the mountains. And um and also just the uh, frustration that I felt um, at the incessant um, blaming of rural people for the phenomenon of Donald Trump, which I didn't feel was fair. I mean, Pre- President Obama hangs over the introduction as well with his his famous guns and religion remark. And yeah, I, I felt that that was one of the very clever ways that you kind of turn things around for us as, as readers, that you show how guns are a way of life in, in Appalachia, but you, you reposition that by saying that for many, privacy is all that's left worth preserving for them. You have a, mm-hmm. a good quote from your father uh, where he says, did you tell them, referring to these these uh, TV people coming down, did you tell them that what these people want is to be left alone? Right. <laughs> right. And, and part of the reason for that is because so often when people from the outside do come in, it is problematic um, because, as I said earlier, they're sort of starting in the middle of the story and of Appalachia's story, and so it can be, I think, very uh, confusing and befuddling to people who aren't comfortable with the culture and familiar with the the story of the culture to be in a space, for example, where guns are such a commonplace thing um, or where, you know, uh, addiction is so visible. Um, it can be it can be unsettling if that's not your everyday experience <clears throat> to encounter, and uh, and I felt uh, really genuinely frustrated at the um, at the lack of understanding by what you know the media, who I think has good intentions, but um, still goes into seems to go into those situations uh, already with a story in mind. Um, that they've decided. I mean, we talked. We talked about uh, guns. There, uh, religion is the other part of that remark, and that's also a very important part of your story. Um, at mm-hmm. one stage, you leave Appalachia during your childhood. Uh, you go. You grow up in in Minnesota in a very religious community uh, called the Body. Um, uh, how did you end up there, and what was that experience like for you? Well, the the uh, this. The story of how I ended up there is is really more my father's story, my parents' story, and um, it, I think it has a lot to do with his return from Vietnam, from a tour of duty in Vietnam, and um, and a desire to create a life for himself that uh, existed outside of the coal industry. Um, in in the mountains, he was trying to make a, a new life for himself, so he was. Putting, kind of putting out feelers into the world. And we were already living in Ohio at that time. He was working at a, a asbestos plant, um, making breaks 
um, just anything to try to avoid going down into the mines, you know, um, and there weren't a lot of options for him. So, so I think that the body was an extension of that desire that he had to reinvent himself and to create a, a different life for himself and his family than, um, you know, he'd ever been given the opportunity to do. And it's it's quite hard for you that uh, your parents sell off kind of many of their possessions, give away kind of a great deal of their money. You uh, you kind of have to kind of live quite a Spartan life. You have this kind of wonderful phrase where you you describe your life as being both terrifying and boring, uh, where in, in, in entertainment is praise the Lord TV. So it's a it's a very unusual childhood, but in some ways you say it is also a, a very American childhood what why what why is that well i think because religion in america is is such a um a, it's it's the fabric of our culture and in, in, in a way that i think is specific to the united states um though you know i can't speak to that with any kind of expertise but but i know that it's true here that that religion pervades every aspect of our lives, specifically Christian evangelical religion, um, is pervasive in a way that almost feels to me, um, you know, epidemic, um, because it's it's so present that we can't see it anymore. And and um, since the release of the book, I've received so many messages from women who were raised in you know, churches that maybe were not quite as, as um, extreme in appearance as the body, but, but really ultimately um, taught this message of the same doctrine, um, which is, you know, that Christian evangelical uh, spirit-filled tradition um, that is, you know, I think the foundation of American culture. I suppose another part of American culture and the, the kind of the American experience is moving around. That again, that is a very common American experience. It's something that you particularly connected with as a child with Laura Ingalls, the uh, Little House mm -hmm. on the Prairie books that uh, mean a lot to you. And it, it seems to me that one of the main themes of those of themes of those, of those books is that hanging on to yourself, even when you're moving around all the time is kind of central to that childhood experience and certainly that is true for you I think right yeah and I think also just the um, the inevitability of family becoming so central to your existence because it's the thing that doesn't change you know when you're changing locations so frequently um, for example my friendship with my sister, my closeness with my sister was a constant in my childhood. Um, and of course, the relationship I had with my parents, I think when you're on the move, those relationships become even more focused and central a part of your life because they're the they're unchanging. They're really the only things that don't change.
Yeah, and that's it's one of the the really impactful elements of this book that in in many ways you're very frank about your parents' failings. Your mother you describe as a, a quiet ravine. She gave the illusion of warmth but was as cold as a planet. Uh, your father is is shown he monitored you like a private detective, you say, that uh, your behavior often got me a whipping uh, and so on. And and yet it's also a very affectionate portrait uh, of these of these two people and genuinely kind of reflects the kind of the sense of a of a loving family. So that that I wonder what that was actually like for you writing that experience with these kind of extremes of um, genuine kind of truth, even when that hurts, but also this great affection that uh, you clearly feel for them and for your childhood. Yeah, I don't. I don't really feel like I had any choice but to write it the way that I do. Again, you know, my relationships with them were so central to my life and continued to be so. Um, and and uh, I think the way that I view my experiences again is on a continuum of of an of a family story that extends back so far. And, and consists of so many of the same repeated themes, you know, whether you're talking about the sort of struggle against violence, against poverty. Um, I think every generation of my family has sort of battled that out. And I feel as someone, you know, as an extension of that, as someone who is continuing that battle, um, I feel a real affinity for the people who came before me. Um, you know, I don't feel comfortable judging them for the struggle because, you know, of course I have the benefit of, of, of waging that battle in 2021 um, as a different person, but my grandfather waged that battle and my father did and I do. And, and so there's a sort of sense of community that I feel with people who are trying to do better for themselves and their families it's not always pretty, that struggle, trying to do better, um, trying to be better. So, yeah, I, I feel um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a struggle for me to write about the people in my story with compassion and, and some sort of gentleness, some degree of gentleness. And you're you're quite funny about yourself at at times in the book. That uh, that my, my one of my favourite elements was when you start quoting from your old yearbooks and uh, which which contains great things like although you get on my nerves all the time, you're a great friend. Uh, says one of your uh, says one of your school friends and and kind of so on. But but yeah. but uh, kind of education reading this this you do very definitely point to this as a way in which somebody. Uh, living in your uh, at that time that you could move on with your life you say for example that uh, when you leave uh, leave for college that I wanted a real house a real life and college seemed the way to make that happen I'm interested whether you still think that's true because as the book goes on to show it doesn't necessarily work out for you that kind of very conventional experience you do it very much in your own individual way so what what, when you look back, do you still think that wanting a real house, a real life, that college is the way to make that happen? Um, 
Well, I think, of course, I think that varies based on the individual. And I think, you know, so often when we talk about Appalachia, we talk about it like there might be one solution for everyone. Um, uh, certainly, I would, I would hope that um, educational opportunities would be made far more available than they are in the mountains of eastern Kentucky. Um, but for me, college wasn't really the answer, at least not the first time that I tried it. Um, and the reasons for that are, are super complicated um, and I think uh, tied up in both my personality and my experiences. But what, what um, I seemed to be able to forge my own path more um, from the starting point of motherhood, of young motherhood, which um, I think because I had such low self-esteem as a young woman, um, having a baby for me, and again, not that this is the answer for everyone, but having a baby for me gave me a sense of purpose that I could understand, you know, in a very traditional way the value of raising a child, the value of, of doing that well, the desire to do it well, was something that I understood um, innately in a way that I didn't really understand academia as a 20-year-old and, um, and wouldn't understand it for a long time. I'm not sure I do now, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I have, at this point, at least managed to, you know, finish school to study something that I feel comfortable doing, that I love doing, which is, of course, writing, um, I still feel a little outside of academia, and I don't know that that will ever change, um, because it's, it's a different language, it's a different world, um, it's a world that didn't seem really to be aware of the struggles and the challenges that I was up against. It felt, at times, impenetrable, the world of academia for me, and that's still the case sometimes. Um, so yeah, for me it was it was the the warm intimacy of motherhood and the sort of structure that that gave to my days that seemed to set me on the right path or at least on a better path. Yeah, you you talk about how it, it in many ways you hoped that this would be a liberation for you that future of your own home and a garden, child to bond with, the freedom to write and so on. But but it's interesting that, that as a reader that the book ends on both a, a low point but also a high point because you are kind of almost in despair at the end of the book in this in the actual story. But you say at the end that this. This is the moment, this is the version of yourself that you would now go back to and say, listen, everything will be all right. I can do this. And then you end uh, by, by, telling, by telling your younger self, and I did, that you did do it. So <laughs> it's, it's, an, it's an amazing kind of moment because this, this story as you leave, that really it kind of seems as if you're perhaps agreeing with your mother um, when she says that um, kind of earlier in the book that I hated every minute we were away and I never want to leave again. So, you know, perhaps now you appreciate place in a way that perhaps you didn't when you were when you were younger. Yeah, I think I mean, it was incredibly painful to leave. And yet at the same time, I think I knew that I had to if I was going to figure out who I was. It's difficult to reinvent yourself 
in a town of less than 100 people, you know, and um, ultimately that's what I was experiencing. So I, I knew that I had to leave to be able to um, reinvent myself, to understand who I was, but it, it was painful then and, and it's still painful to be away from the place that I love. I think that is something that's distinctive to Appalachian culture and identity, um, which is that feeling always of being conflicted. Many, many Appalachian writers have written about that, about what it means not to be um, in the place that you come from and that you belong to. Because there is a sense, um, always a sense of more of my belonging to that place than the place itself belonging to me. And what what do you think the future is for Appalachia? As we said earlier in the interview, it's kind of very much been part of the political discussion. Um, where where do you see things going? And and how helpful do you think that this kind of conversation um, that has been going on generally over the the last few years uh, has been for the people who live there? That's a great question. Well, the, the first thing I would say is that um, the future of Appalachia at this moment, I think it really hangs in the balance. And, and it's, it's not, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that the, um, the political climate is sort of at a breaking point right now, especially in Kentucky and Eastern Kentucky. Um, if you look at the... Um, candidates who are always running against each other for political office, they are as divided as night and day, yeah, as different as night and day. And, and there's this ongoing battle sort of for the heart of, of Kentucky. Um, I think that a lot of the future of Kentucky is going to depend on America's willingness to... Um, to sort of pay homage to the the debt um, that is owed Kentucky, specifically the coal fields, for the the um, role that they played in the Industrial Revolution, um, and the the um, it's it's hard to articulate. I'm sorry if I'm getting lost here, but the but ultimately the. Um, it's going to be about money. It's going to be about funding and not just funding for um, solutions that make sense to people in New England or make sense to people in Washington, D.C., but funding for solutions that make sense specifically to Appalachians, to the people who live there. It will mean giving them the autonomy and the funding to make the changes that are necessary to stabilize, you know, a very shaky infrastructure. I don't know if that makes sense. But yeah, and, and so, I mean, there's the economic side. I, I wonder about the cultural side as well, that uh, without kind of uh, getting into the, the politics specifically, but, uh, but I think... It, surely it is true, isn't it, that 
uh, people in that region probably are frustrated and and fed up with oh, uh, being, being so. looked down upon, uh, being mm -hmm. patronised, uh, being spoken oh, yeah. about in derogatory terms, um, and the their contribution to American life both today um, and as you say in the kind of the building of uh, the United States and particularly its economic prosperity um, has been uh, literally forgotten about. It can be very frustrating. I remember when when uh, Hillary Clinton was running against Donald Trump and she made a comment early on, um, an offhand comment that, and keep in mind, I voted for her in both the primary and the uh, general election, but but she said that she assured um, her followers that they were going to put uh, a bunch of coal miners out of business. And, and I knew when she said that, she was speaking specifically about the industry, but it was, it was a hurtful comment. Um, it was a careless comment. And I knew as soon as I heard it that she wasn't going to do well in Kentucky, um, and she didn't. So, you know, I think it's going to, politicians are going to have to figure out, specifically politicians on the left, are going to figure out how to speak about the mountains in a way that is respectful and allows for a certain amount of dignity and autonomy. And, and historically, that hasn't been the case. Um, somehow, the industry of coal and the people who have been exploited by that industry are conflated, I think, in sort of um, America's leftist ideology. And, and that distinction is going to have to be made and care, more, far more care is going to have to be taken in speaking about people from the region if um, there's ever going to be progress. And I, I suppose a good example of that is that the place that you come from in Kentucky is literally made up of the initials of the uh, Southeast yes. Coal Company. So that's exactly right. So this 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 kind of sense of um, the the link between uh, coal and community is particularly strong there. And and it seems to me that it is very much a, a battle which is going on generally politically, but but also specifically within the Democratic Party between. Uh, the, with the Democrats, who traditionally were the party of blue-collar working class, mm -hmm. and the extent to which the party still wants to reach out and speak to those people in a way that perhaps someone like President Biden, coming from an older generation, uh, has been able to do because it was always part of his uh, political part uh, of part of his political philosophy. But th but that that must that must worry you as somebody who, as you've just described, there was. Uh, was was somebody who voted for Hillary Clinton, uh, was kind of voting for the Democratic Party, uh, and yet increasingly the community that you come from uh, seems to be ostracised, belittled, and laughed at uh, by many in that same party. Yeah, it, it is a real uh, challenge, and I've been asked before by people in the mountains in Letcher County, where I'm from, how I can even vote. The way that I do because for them you know for me it's I think the focus is on the policies that I think are more likely to rebuild um, you know the mountains and the coal fields but but uh, you know it's the it's the manner and the approach that 
put people off um, before they even get to the policies, I think, often, because they, they feel so insulted by the way they're being talked about um, and pitied or scorned or, um, you know, any number of negative reactions that are being had sort of on a national scale pointed the, in the directions of the mountain. And 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 finally Sean uh, I mean this this as we've said in many ways this is this is a, this book is a love letter to uh, Appalachia but it's also a very truthful um telling of of your childhood uh, and the area. I, I wonder what kind of uh, reaction the book has had from your friends and family and 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 the community generally to to its publication. Well, for the most part, it's been really wonderful and and kind of astounding. I received I've received so many letters from um, both strangers and family members. Fam- many family members I never expected to hear from. Uh, certainly not in in a way of endorsement, but um, but that is exactly what's happened. And I received a letter from my a cousin of mine not very long ago who who said she could hardly put the book down and that every time my grandmother was on the page, she could hear her voice because I'd so accurately depicted her in the story, which meant the absolute world to me. I mean, that's probably the highlight so far of having the book published um, has been hearing from people who, who are thrilled to see themselves for the first time in their experience, at least in, in a memoir. Um, people who are generally underrepresented in literature have really responded to it. Um, And I've been so grateful for that response. So the book is Kin, a memoir. It's written by my guest, Shauna K. Rodenberg, and published by Bloomsbury. But for now, Shauna, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>